0: Yes, let's talk. Um, we're going to just keep on trucking along in this series. And if I'm being completely honest with you, um, I have been um, had this day circled on my calendar. This is probably, other than the resurrection, um, my, um, my favorite week um, of this series. But this series has been all about the questions that uh, people like me, people like you, uh, people like Christians, people like who aren't sure what they believe, even even atheists, may have about... Christianity. Um, and as you've already heard, we've talked about the problem of God's existence. We've talked about the problem of science. Uh, last week, Pastor Mark did a great job laying out the problem of um, hypocrisy. Um, and this, this series is a little bit heady. It's a little bit intellectual. I've made you think, right? It's all about following the evidence to where um, it leads. And today um, is, is no different than that. I'm going to throw a lot at you. Um, but today is, is the problem of the Bible, Okay. So I brought one of my favorite Bibles that I own. (sighs) Isn't that awesome? This is one of my favorite Bibles. It was actually given to me by one of my golf buddies who bought it at an auction uh, about a year or two ago. Um, This thing has so much in it. Um, It has an old and a new Testament. Kind of important part, right? Has a Bible dictionary. Um, It has a section that talks about the cities that are mentioned in the Bible. Has over 1,500 illustrations, so drawings, pictures. Um, Has a section with 4,000 questions and answers. Um, from the old and the new Testament. And then in the back, it has some, um, some funeral notices or death notices, which is kind of weird, but, um, that, that has that. My favorite part is this right here. These two hinge latches that keeps all the goodness inside. It's just a Bible with hinges. Are you kidding me? Right. It also comes with a herniated disc as I just found out when I picked it up. Um, lift with your legs, lift with your legs. Right. Um, now, I don't open it a lot because the pages are really brittle. You can see the bindings kind of coming out here. So it, it's, it, it sits in my office up um, with, with my books, and it's a great conversation starter, right? Now, as, as important as the Bible is to me, like I've, I have given my adult life to studying and teaching and preaching this, um, personally speaking, there is no, I've read a lot of books there is no other book that has challenged and changed me personally than the Bible. And as much as that's true, and as some of you, that's true for you too. As much as that's true for us, there are people who have a problem with the Bible. There are people who have a problem with it. And some of the problem is it's, it's, you know, it's, it's kind of shallow. It's I don't really understand it when I read it. Um, it gets a little bit deeper for some people. It's okay. Um, why does the God of the Old Testament seem inconsistent with the God of the New Testament? And even if they are consistent, how can I believe in a God that would fill in the blank, right? Um, some people view it as a tool that's been used to oppress people and enslave people. Some people view it as full of myth and fable and moral teaching that has absolutely nothing to do with a with modern world, right? all kinds of problems with the Bible. There there are people who have problems with the Bible. It's the problem of the Bible. And and what do you do with questions like that? What do you do do with with objections to that? you just say, well, that's their problem. They're going to have to deal with that. I don't think that's a a good response (laughs) at all. So we're going to cover a lot of territory today. We're not going to get to all of those questions um, and all of those objections, but I want to I want to start here. As much as I love the Bible, as much as it's guided and corrected um, and changed me, the Bible isn't the point. The Bible points to the point of Christianity, Jesus. Like scripture, properly understood, properly applied, it's not the point of Christianity. It points us to the point of Christianity. And if you get this mixed up, if you elevate the Bible above everything else, you actually start to get into something called bibliolatry, not bibliography, bibliolatry. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's making the Bible an idol. It's, it's worshiping the Bible. And maybe we need to come back and spend an entire day on that alone, but we just need to start there. The Bible is, is reliable. I believe it's trustworthy. It's historically verifiable but it's not the point of Christianity. It points to the point of Christianity. Oxford professor and former atheist C.S. Lewis said this, it's Christ himself, not the Bible, who is the true word of God. The Bible read in the right spirit and with the guidance of good teachers will bring us to him. The whole point of reading, the whole point of studying, the whole point of understanding the Bible is not just to understand the Bible. It's to get to Jesus. And even if you do that, even if you have, have, have a right view of it, the Bible still causes a lot of questions and even skepticism in people, okay? So let's, let's talk about some of those things. Um, the first one that I wanna go after has to do with the inaccuracies of the Bible. A lot of people would ask it like this. Is what we're reading today what was originally written? Um, is what you read in your Bible or in your Bible app or what we put up on the screen on Sundays. Is, is that what the authors originally wrote? And the, the implication or the question behind the question here is, how can you base your faith on something that may not be the original intent of what was written? And it's a good question because, because Scripture is thousands of years old. Um, how do we know if what we're reading is what was originally written? So let's talk about that, Okay. This is actually a question of ancient manuscripts. And I know you woke up today going, I hope we talk about ancient manuscripts at church today. Okay? But that's actually, that's actually what we have to talk about. So here's my chart. You've heard of Plato before. Yes? Okay? Plato lived in between 427 and 347 BC. The earliest manuscript we have of anything he wrote is from 900 AD, which is about a 1200, 1,200-year uh, 1200 gap. Okay, And we have seven copies of the stuff he wrote. Um, Aristotle, he's uh, he's not quite a contemporary of Plato, but he learned a lot from Plato, Uh, lived 384 to 322 BC. The earliest manuscript we have is from 1100 AD, a gap of 1,400 years, so we're getting a little bit bigger, and we have 49 copies of what he wrote. Let's get a little bit closer to the time of Jesus, the Roman historian Tacitus. He lived around 100 years after Jesus. The earliest manuscript of anything that he wrote that we have is 1100 AD, which is about a thousand-year gap, and we have 20 copies of his stuff, okay? Now, i show you that to to say this. Nobody is saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We can't trust the Republic because, I mean... It's, there's a gap of 1,200 years between the time that he wrote it and, and, and the earliest manuscript. And can we really believe that Aristotle actually said that? Look at the gap. And, and, and the Tacitus, really? Because whose payroll was he on? He was on the emperor's payroll. Can we really trust what he had to say? Nobody's saying that about these guys. Nobody's saying about their writings. And you have to also remember, this is pre-printing press. That's really hard to say. (laughs) Pre-print, you know what I meant, okay? It's before the printing press. Um, They had to copy all this stuff by hand. So surely there's mistakes that were made, right? In between copy to copy to copy to copy. So what about the New Testament, right? What about the New Testament? Um, Is it at least as verifiable as the writings of Plato, Aristotle, and Tacitus? New Testament was written from a period of about 50 to 100 A.D. The earliest manuscript we have is from about 125 A.D., at least that's been peer-reviewed. There's actually bits and pieces of the Gospel of John that come from a couple decades after it was written. And how many copies of it do we have? Is it seven? Is it 49? Is it 20? We have 25,000 copies of the New Testament. 5,800 of those are in Greek. There's some in Latin. There's some in Syriac. There's some in Coptic. There's some in other kinds of languages, which just shows you how far and wide the thing went. So can you believe? Can you say that what you're reading is actually what was written? Here's what this means. It means... The New Testament is the most widely attested ancient manuscript in existence. That is objectively true from conservative and liberal scholars. All sides of the aisle will say that's objectively true. Whether you believe it's true, whether you believe it's the the final authority in your life, that's another question. But what you read today is what was written. And then the, the, kind of the next objection, the next question is, uh, okay, Tim, that's great, but how accurate are the manuscripts we have? Like if they were copied by hand over all that time, surely mistakes were made, surely the meaning changed over time. Well, i want to go back even further than the New Testament to the Old Testament to show you this, okay? Until 1946, the oldest copy of Isaiah discovered was in the Leningrad Codex, which was about 1000 AD, okay? Which means... You read the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lived centuries before Jesus, but until 1946, the earliest manuscript we had from Isaiah was 1,000 years after Jesus. Then in 1946, the great Isaiah scroll was found with an intact copy of Isaiah dating to 100 BC. We just knocked off 1,100 years. The question is, how, many, how much difference was there between the one that they found in 1946 and the one that they found that was from 1000 AD. The manuscript from thousand eight AD was 99% accurate to the one that they found 100 BC. And the only differences, the only changes were minor word changes. There's no change in the meaning. Because if you were going to copy um, any kind of Hebrew text, this is how it worked. You're a scribe, you're sitting there, you're copying it from one thing to another while you had two other scribes standing over your shoulder. And if you made a mistake, if they found either two of them made, found that you made a mistake, start all over again. They've been meticulously copied for thousands and thousands of years. How do we know what we're reading today is what was originally written? Historians, theologians, the people that study this stuff will say, what you're reading is what was written. You're reading what Isaiah wrote. You're reading what Matthew wrote. You're reading what Paul wrote. The Bible you read today is what was originally written. And the more archeology span finds, the more it just proves this. There's zero, almost zero doubt, that what we read today is what was originally written. It whether or not you believe it's true, is a different question. But you have to start here. The objective truth is, what we're reading, was what was originally written. Okay. I, I want to show you something. Just just look at Luke chapter one. Okay. We usually kind of just skim through the first couple verses. of of the gospels because we think that's the introduction to the real stuff. But just watch what Luke's trying to do here. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account. He said, there's other people besides me and Matthew and Mark and, and, and John that are trying to do this. A lot of people have tried to do this. Of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word as in Jesus, With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, remember Luke was a doctor by trade, he's a scientist, he wants to see the evidence, so he followed the evidence where it led. Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, this could be an actual person, or it could be a nickname for his audience, because Theophilus literally means lover of God, but either way, Luke wanted to write an accurate account so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Luke's saying, I investigated this. I I collected stories. I interviewed eyewitnesses. I fact-checked their stories. And then people throughout the last 2,000 years have gone to great lengths to make sure that what we're reading today is what was originally Written, whether you believe it's true or not is another question, but you have to start with the objective truth, that what you're reading is what was written, okay? Second question, second objection that that people will hear is, okay, what about the parts that contradict each other, especially in the Gospels? Because Matthew records it like this, and Luke says it like this, was it one angel or two angels? Okay? Good question. It's a great question. There are are some apparent contradictions. Here's what I want you to think about. I spent last week in Des Moines watching some second round games, okay? One of those games was the KU game. I'm sorry, KU fans. I'm not really heartbreaking for you because OU didn't even make the tournament, so on you, right? (laughs) But I watched the game. You guys watched the game. I watched it live. You watched it on TV. Do you think we're going to have a different perspective on what happened that day? Yeah. Do you think the other 16,000 people in that arena are going to have a different perspective on what happened that day? We're going to get the main idea right. Like Arkansas won and the Arkansas coach took off his shirt and that was gross, right? (laughs) You saw it in HD. I saw it from the nosebleeds. Praise the Lord. But you're going to have a different perspective than I will. And the 16,000 people in the auditorium are going to have a different perspective than I did. And when you come to the Gospels, we have four different accounts. We have four different perspectives on the same thing. So people will say, well, there's difference in, there's difference here. There's, it's a contradicting here. Okay, that's one way to think about it. But come on. Do you think Jesus taught the parables once? No. He went from village to village to village and he taught them multiple times with different audiences and and different settings, and as somebody who teaches the same thing three times every Sunday morning and sometimes recycles his messages later down the road, I guarantee you, I say pretty much the same thing, but I don't say the exact same thing all three services because there's different audiences. It's a different setting. There's different things that pop out. I guarantee you. If you teach the same thing at different times with different audiences over a span of 3 years and have four people record that there's going to be some differences but that's actually <laughs> that actually proves the validity of the gospels because it shows that all four of them didn't get in a room together and say what's our story they recorded their perspective they recorded what they saw. And even the differences that you see that seem like contradictions, they're, not, they're, they're minor differences. They're not huge differences. So can you trust that what you're reading is what was written? Yes. Okay, are there different versions of the same story? Yes, especially in the Gospels. But that's actually what you would expect from four different viewpoints. Okay, and then the last, the last question, last objection I want to go after is probably the one that I've heard the most at least as, as a pastor, they, it goes like this. Okay, maybe what we're reading is what was written. Um, maybe the point is Jesus. Maybe those contradictions aren't as big of a deal as I thought they were, but isn't the Bible been used like in dangerous ways throughout history? Hasn't the Bible been used to oppress people? Hasn't the Bible even been used to kill people? I mean, Tim, what about, what about, what about this text? If you are delivered of a child, if it's a boy, keep it. If a girl, discard it. Sounds pretty dangerous to me. But that's not in the Bible, is it? This is why you should read your Bible. You never know what I'm going to put up there. That actually came from a letter from a first century Roman citizen that he wrote to his wife. This was the culture. This was the idea, this was the thought at the time. Women, girls, they had they had no status. They they were property. First of their father and then of their husband. They had no voice, they had no standing whatsoever, and that wasn't just the case in the first century. Look at what's happened in China in my lifetime. We don't know how many, but it's upwards of 20 to 30 million baby girls discarded, killed. So it's not just the first century. This kind of thinking, this kind of idea still exists to this day, and then you come to what Jesus says. I just want to show you one instance where Jesus' teaching and Jesus' actions on this are completely subversive to that idea. John chapter 4. If you have a Bible or a mobile device, you want to follow along, look at John chapter 4. Many of you know this story, but hear it from this perspective, all right? says this, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was getting or gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, as in John the Baptist. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So the Pharisees are scared that Jesus' movement is gaining and theirs is plateaued or or declining. And Jesus hears of this. Um, It is not yet his time to die. And so he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee, and then we're told this interesting detail. Now, he had to go through Samaria. Interesting detail because he didn't have to go through Samaria. This would be like me saying, guys, this afternoon, I got to get down to Oklahoma, but I have to go through Missouri. You would say, no, you don't. That's actually out of the way. It kind of sounds like you're. Directionally challenged, like somebody from Arkansas. uh, (laughs) Right? You don't have to go through Missouri to get to Oklahoma. Going through Samaria is not a geographical necessity. It's a ministry necessity. He chooses to go through Samaria. Watch what happens. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sakar. Now we need to pause here. Sakaar is a Samaritan village. Um, Samaritans were half Jewish, half Gentile. They're a remnant left from when the northern kingdom of Israel thousands of years before were conquered by the Assyrians and the Assyrians intermarried with the Jews. So full-blooded Jews hate Samaritans. And we in America, we are not exempt from this. We're not exempt from prejudice and racism. We got a long way to go. But We don't even come close to the kind of ethnic hate that Jews have for Samaritans. This is an entire people group hating another people group simply for existing. That's where Jesus finds himself on purpose. A Jewish man, by his own choice, didn't have to, chooses to go through Samaria. He finds himself tired As he was from the journey, he sat down by the well, and it was about noon, which is when the drama starts. And again, I just got to remind you, this happened in the same culture that says, if you have a girl, kill it. If you have a boy, keep it. Same culture where treated women as property. Jesus is Jewish in a Samaritan village. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, we miss so much here, But he says to her, will you give me a drink? Here's what's happening. Jesus as a man puts himself underneath her as a woman. Jesus as a Jew puts himself under her as a Samaritan. This today would be absolutely radical if it happened. This was radical to the nth degree in this day when Jesus did it. So much so that the next verse tells us the Samaritan woman said to him, she responded, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? We're not even supposed to be associating with each other. In other words, I know my place. I know your place. Why are you asking me for a drink? And and Jesus ignores her question. He, he, doesn't even, he doesn't even give credence to any of the social or racial status that she's talking about. He responds, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus, Jesus says, actually, I'm here to bless you. I, I know everybody looks down on you as a woman and I know my people look down on you as a Samaritan, but I'm actually here to let you know that God sees you. God notices you. In fact, God is standing right in front of you ready to give you a gift. And if you're watching this interaction happen, you might be tempted to chime in and say, actually, Jesus, she's not just a a Samaritan. She's not just a woman. Um, She's living with somebody who's not even her husband. And Jesus would have said, I know, which is why he asked her woman, go get your husband. And he knew, she would answer, I don't have a husband. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five. And the man you now have is not... Your husband. Now, just just pause right here. Take a step away from the story for a second. For some of you, this story and what's going on here, this is the reason why you want to poke holes in the Bible. This is why you want to talk about its inaccuracies. This is why you want to talk about all of the things that we can't believe this and we can't believe that because look at what the church has done throughout history. And you know what? I'm, I don't want to read the Bible. And one of the reasons you don't want to read the Bible is because you're afraid the Bible will read you. You're afraid to go into Scripture to see what it says because you're afraid of what it's going to say about you. You wanna keep the Bible at arm's length, but can I show you what happens if you do that? Because Jesus and this woman keep keep talking and and, and like some of you, she knows about God. Her theology is good enough to know that how she's living is actually wrong. She even knows, hey, someday God's gonna send the Messiah. She knows enough about God, she knows enough theology to understand, and then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one sent to show you who God is. I'm the one sent to give you good things, even though you don't deserve it, and you know that. I'm the one sent to gracefully and perfectly restore you to the father. This would have been great news to this woman. I mean, we call it the good news, but do you know why it's good news? (laughs) It's good news if you're this woman because the way that the culture worked, she didn't leave those five men. They dumped her. They sent her away. She's living with a man who more than likely doesn't love her, but there's companionship there, and it's a, it's, a, it's a live-in servant. In a culture that completely ignores and even abuses her, God shows up on purpose. He had to go through Samaria and says, I see you. I value you. I love you. I have a gift for you. What does that do to that woman's heart? What does that do to your heart right now? What does that do to that woman's heart? We get a little bit of a clue. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me everything I did. She doesn't talk about how he condemned her. Just come see a man who told me everything I did. Could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one sent to save us, sent to rescue us, sent to give us standing, sent to see us? Can I, can I just ask? If the Bible isn't the point, but it points us to the point, how is that oppressive? Like, how is that dangerous? If the point of Christianity is Jesus and you listen to what he says and you watch what he does and you follow him, I don't see that anywhere. Because because the Jesus the Bible points to stands against oppression. The Jesus the Bible points to is subversive to to the kingdoms and the social and racial norms that we put in place. The the Jesus the Bible points to is dangerous to the powerful of this world. (laughs) He's so much bigger. He's so much better than anything in this world, which is why it's the good news of Jesus Christ, not the good news of the Bible. So, a couple questions I just want to, to present to you, to give you, to wrestle with, to think through, maybe to answer as we... As we land the plane, here's the first question Would you read the Bible more knowing that you're reading what was written? Would you read it more? Would, does it at least pique your interest to think this is actually what Matthew wrote? Will you wrestle with it more knowing this is actually what Paul wrote? I've read it almost every single day of my adult life, and I've read lots of books. I've found nothing else as compelling as the Bible would you read it more knowing that what you're reading is what was written? The second question, are you willing to read the Bible deeply enough for it to read you? This takes a backbone. This takes humility. This takes prayer. This takes following where the spirit leads because you can spend five to 10 minutes every day reading a few verses. You can read a devotional. You can spend every morning with your bible and your coffee and it's just a habit you can do that every single day of your life and never become more like Jesus. You can. If you reading the bible is the point, you've missed the point of reading the bible. It's not until you read it deeply and prayerfully and humbly enough that you become more like the point of the bible. Which leads me to the last question. This is the real question. It's the same question Pastor Mark posed last week. What will you do about the point? What will you do about Jesus? What are you doing about him? How are you responding to his invitation for you to follow him every single day of your life? Because your life right now and your life for eternity hangs in the balance to the answer to that question. What are you doing about Jesus? Because he is the point of the Bible. Yes, it's reliable. I believe it's trustworthy. And I, I, I hope I've showed you that it's historically verifiable, but it's not the point. Jesus is the point. What are you doing? With Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? And if you don't have an answer to that question, we would love to have a conversation with you about that. There are people sitting next to you that would love to have a conversation about that. What are you doing with Jesus? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your... Word, first and foremost, for Jesus. He is the Word of God who has been sent to this world. But God, I also thank you for a a tangible, I can hold it in my hands, I can read words on a page. Thank you for your physical Word that for centuries. Men and women have gone above and beyond to make sure that we know the story, to make sure that we can hold it in our hands, to make sure that more than anything that we know, we can know these things with certainty. And God, would you help us as men and women living here centuries after the events that we read about to be faithful to you to, to, to approach your word appropriately and humbly and prayerfully and, and spirit-led, not just to see what we can get out of it, not just to see what we can, we can get for ourselves, but so that ultimately you, you can change and save and challenge and direct us. And then God, help us to be the kind of people that don't just point to the Bible as a weapon, as a dart, but that we would be men and women who live out your word, that we apply it to our lives, that we allow your spirit to change us in such a way that, that the objections and the questions and all the things that get thrown at it actually completely evaporate because we live out what it looks like. Do you help us with this? God, for the man or the woman who's here today, who's watching online, who's listening to this later, that haven't made a decision about what to do with Jesus, would you even now, by your spirit, speak, whisper, nudge, call them to yourself? And would you give them the courage? Would you put the people around them to help them answer that call? to answer that invitation. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for a moment just to pause, just to say, would you teach us now? Would you, through your spirit, lead us, go with us as we live this out this week and beyond? And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. As you leave, um, I just want to remind you tonight is the bake auction starts at five o'clock. We do have dinner for you. If you want to pre-register and get your bidder number, you can do that today right out in the lobby. Um, if you um, are bringing kids with you tonight, fifth grade and under, make sure you register them on um, the church center app and come with an open wallet and an open purse. It's going to be a good night. All right. See y'all have a good week.